Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Now, James chapter 5 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, And just like we've talked about all the way through this sermon series, James doesn't pull any punches. And this is very much the case with the passage we're going to read together this morning. James kind of goes for the jugular. And in some ways, it feels more personal, personal than ever because he's talking about something that we all interact with. Money. Wealth. And he's talking about it, and just like uh, Abba's song, Money, 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 if we talk about uh, Snoop Dogg, think about money on his mind, we've always got it in our culture, in in our homes, in our conversations, in our personal psyches. Money is a part of our everyday lives, and it is something that the Bible wants to to talk about and wants to invite us to consider how Jesus is actually going to be part of it. And James, in particular, he calls attention to it. And he, he wants us to recognize that even though we're in our Western society and there, there's a lot of different aspects of it and there's a nuance to it when you live in the Western world, there's the cost of living and, and there's all these different variables at play. The reality is that the conversations about money and wealth and what it does to our hearts, these conversations have been happening for a long time. And James is speaking directly to this. And it's not just money, it's the idea of wealth in particular. Did you know that if you make just over $4,000, you are immediately wealthier than 50% of the world's population, of the global population. And that, that, that is part of our Western mentality that we really struggle with, where the idea of wealth and riches and status has been so escalated and, and, and scaled to a degree that we don't even have a full understanding of what money and wealth and what it is actually doing in the terms of driving us forward is, is doing to our minds and to our hearts and to our souls and to our relationships. And there's a warning that James is going to be giving in this passage. It's one of the most... Uh, difficult passages that you might hear in the in the New Testament. It's stern and it's strong and it kind of catches you off guard. So as we read this, this is what I want you to know. that James is writing to uh, a group of people that are struggling with this idea of, of wealth inequality. There, there's a large amount of tension between the poor and the rich. And Christians in particular at that time were of the poor variety that he's writing to, the, the readers and the listeners. And they were dealing with a ton of persecution and hurt from, from the rich unbelievers in their area. But this letter is written to them because there's a sense of envy that's starting to grow within them. There's a sense of wanting to desire to, to be like them that's, that's starting to rise and a bitterness that's starting to take root in their heart. And James is writing to them and he's saying, The grass is not always so green on the other side. So we're going to read this morning out of James chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 6. So let's read together. James 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep 
and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. All right, thank you to Khadija for uh, leading us in that reading this morning. And I hope that you listen carefully to those very clear, direct, and somewhat jarring words that James writes. As we move forward, I want to just tell you a quick story. Um, in 2008, Suzanne Collins, she released this book called The Hunger Games. Perhaps you've read it, perhaps you've watched the movies, but I remember in 2008 when it came on, it came out, everybody was kind of talking about it. I, I, I read it pretty quickly and it was just something that really did take over the imagination of those that I was, I was hanging out with in our circle of, of influence. And uh, a couple of years later, it became a feature film, this global phenomenon. But essentially, it was the story of this young girl who was in a poor district. And she became someone who rose in, in status, in, in opportunity, but eventually would rise in opposition to the authoritarian government. I'm not trying to spoil the, the books or the movie if you haven't seen it in any way, but there's one point a little bit later on in the series where she does eventually get to leave the poor district and make her way to the capital and not just to a space where she's training uh, to be part of those Hunger Games, but a space where she's actually interacting with high society. She's inter interacting in the capital with people who are in extravagance, the complete opposite of her experience in the poor district. And she does this and she sees all of the things that she probably desired materially for herself come to be in the capital. Every bit of, of food and abundance, every uh, innovative piece of technology and every possible luxury that people were taking advantage of and, and enjoying for themselves, but in, in a space that was almost this willful ignorance of the cost it was for the poor districts in the way that they were living. And as she became more aware of it, she was beginning to see the cost of the lifestyle that they were living, the cost of the extravagance, the cost of the wealth. And this, this dystopian world is framed in such a way, but it's not really a novel concept. Many a fictitious story has this dystopian world in a sci-fi genre. It, it, it's fairly common, but very consistently, what we see is that the, the author is fabricating this world based upon the reality that we kind of find ourselves in today. Uh, in understanding what our fleshly desires are and the cost that they come at. Material status, monetary security, extravagant lifestyles, all desired and pursued within this, this universe, but at the cost of others and also themselves. And then we say to ourselves, well, that, that, that's not a real story, Jason. That's not a real place. That, had, that didn't actually happen. 
But if we're honest with ourselves and if we look at the world we live in, many of the ways that we see this come to fruition in the story of the Hunger Games is the reality that we find ourselves in today. It's the world that we find in, it's, uh, find ourselves in. It's the mentality. It's the heart behind the way that people treat one another and the way that, that there's the pursuit of wealth and affluence and extravagance that overrides the basic humanity that we are imbued with as children of God made in the image of God, where money takes the lead. And if you thought to yourself that, well, uh, I'm going to watch this movie, but that has nothing to do with me. The reality is in our Western world, this is very much at the root of many of our problems. And speaking honestly, as I should every Sunday, uh, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of thinking of money too often. I'm guilty of thinking about the things I'm going to spend money on too often, of wanting to, to make money and, and sometimes wanting to, to have an overwhelming sense of extravagance, getting stuck down a rabbit hole on YouTube where I look at the lives of the rich and famous and I think to myself, how cool would that be? And James is encountering this because there's so often the paradigm that we are up against in our world where we see the problems all around us and the world says wealth is the solution to all your problems. Wealth is the solution to all your problems and this is what we live with. This is what we sometimes agree to. This is sometimes the, the paradigm by which we choose to operate on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's not isolated to our modern day. This is what James was seeing within the people that, were, that he was writing to. There was a clear wealth inequality that was taking place between the Christians and, and those who were persecuting them. And a lot there was this disdain that was starting to rise, this, this, this desire to be a, more like them. And James is trying to communicate the longings of your heart are, might just see simply the wealth that they have, but you do not see the cost that that wealth is coming at. Because we ask ourselves the question, just like they do, perhaps if, perhaps if I had more money, I'd be more accepted. Perhaps if I had more money, my life would just be easy. Perhaps if I got more money, they would leave me alone. And this letter written to Christian goes off on those wealthy, often non-believers. And in the words of the notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. I guess uh, Biggie might have checked out the book of James. James's purpose here is not to primarily just teach the ungodly rich about the error of their ways. Don't, don't, don't hear me wrong on that. He's not just trying to call them out. He's trying to articulate to the Christians that were experiencing their struggle and their, their poverty, that the grass is not always greener on the other side. Don't, don't lust after money. Don't try and pursue extravagance and wealth as the solution to your problems, but understand the problems that come with that heart the problems that come with that line of thinking. It, it, it's so interesting how 
James communicates because it's similar to how maybe the prophets communicated in the Old Testament where they're communicating to the people of Israel about all the surrounding nations saying how God God's heart burns against them the ways that they're living and the ways that they're experiencing the the the, the products of the land and, and the fruits of their labor and, and the ways in which that they're pursuing the life that they have been given and the, there's this longing that's rising in the hearts of the Israelites and they're saying what if we just did that maybe we would be okay what if we pursued that God what if we lived this way and, and the way that the prophets would communicate was, was to let them know that the grass is not always greener on the other side you need to know the heart of God within it. Douglas Moo, he says this. He said that James' style is that of the prophets pronouncing doom on pagan nations. This is what he's trying to communicate. He's not saying it to those nations. He's not, he's not saying it to those people. And he's not saying it to the, to the readers and to the listeners so that they go and tell them. No, he's saying it to the Christians who are experiencing this envy rising in their hearts and a misunderstanding of what wealth is actually going to do. James wants his readers to know, like I said, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. In fact, James shows us in this passage that it can be incredibly dangerous to be in the particular position that those rich people were finding themselves. And so there, and then he dives right in. James begins his denunciation on these particular rich people. And he says that they ought to weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on them. That's in verse 1. And the verses that follow, they explain what it is that they're being judged for. But they're not being judged and they're not being they're not experiencing these things because they have money, but it's because money has them. It's not wealth that is the issue, but rather what is done and not done with that wealth. Have, have you ever seen that show on A&E? Maybe you've just heard about it like me. I don't think I've ever actually watched an episode, but I've heard about it. You kind of hear about it in, in, in pop culture, this show about hoarders. And it tells like these really dramatic stories. I think the, the most dramatic one I've ever heard was this uh, woman who was storing up bottles of human waste. Another one was storing up dead cats. Another one was, was rats. Another one was dolls, hoarding dolls, those eyes everywhere watching you. And we see the extreme ways that we hoard and we think about material possessions kind of taking over our lives. And we kind of laugh at this. But if we're honest, we're kind of all guilty of a healthy, unhealthy sense of needing accumulation. I need to accumulate this in order to be successful. That's the same line of thinking. I need more of this in order to be happy. That is really the line of thinking for a hoarder. So much so that it becomes like this, this brain action that normalizes my accumulation as something that is not simply a want anymore, but a need. This is what James is talking about very specifically when he says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. This is in verses two and three. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have held on to something as if you have needed it, not understanding that wealth that is given to you is not simply for you, but it's meant to work through you. 
He's trying to say that your accumulated wealth is being gathered without use or purpose, and it is all-consuming in your very being. In, in, in a hoarding situation, the owner is not even really seeming to like wanting to use it. They just want to have it. So that's the question we ask ourselves this morning. Is there that which I don't really want to use, but I just want to have, and I just need more of it, and I need more of it, and I need more of it, and it is like wealth that is rotting me from the inside out because it is having far more control than I even realize. Because we live in a society where accumulation is seen as good in its own right. Amassing money and possessions is often commended. And I'm not saying to not save. Please hear me. I'm not saying to not be wise with your investments. To, to not save money. But to, to pursue extravagance in the manner of hoarding. Of accumulating just for the sake of, of accumulating. Is a dangerous path of placing power in the hands of your money, turning something that is a want into a need. Because James is showing us just to pursue wealth just for its own sake is actually ungodly. And I'm not saying don't save. I'm not saying don't contribute to your pension plans. Be wise. Take care of yourself. But we need to think about the ways in which we are doing such things. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God. Hoarding is idolatry. And this is the other thing that I found hoarding to do. Hoarding is isolating in many ways. It makes you hesitant to, to invest elsewhere, to be generous, because you gotta make sure you have enough to make sure you got more of what you already have because you need more of it, even though it's simply a want. And what it does is it isolates you from people, from community, from relationships. Did, did you know this? Did you know that Paul wrote the phrase, our Lord 53 times and my Lord once in the, in the New Testament? That is to say that Christianity and following Jesus is not meant to be done in isolation. Christianity is meant to be communal. It's, you're not a free agent. Get invested into a church. Get poured into a community. Get surrounded by people. And to take on actions with our money that are leading us to a place of hoarding are only going to simply lead us to a place of isolation and not in the manner that God has created us to be, to thrive in community and to live in our, this response to God's grace to us with generosity. There's, there's more to our money than simply accumulation. Uh, there's one particular example in that show, uh, on that A&E show, where it's a, there's the individual, he's, he's collecting 2,500, catch this with me, 2,500 free-roaming rats. His name was Glenn. And he has, and what this has caused within his home is that the rats have so overwhelmed his home to the point that he has been forced out to live in the shed. The thing that he had hoarded now carried the authority to move him out of the space that he called home. It actually moved him away from that place of comfort, away from that place of security, and it became the ultimate authority in his life. And hear me this morning. When it comes to our finances, when it comes to money and to wealth, the principal seat of affection often becomes 
the greatest allotment of authority. Our principal seat of affection, where I direct my affection, becomes the place that I allow to have the greatest authority in my life. So if all of my affection is towards money, suddenly when I don't have money, my emotions are overwhelmed. My, my relationships deteriorate. My lifestyle goes haywire. But if my affection is in a savior that is generous to me, when life does not go according to plan, when my finances are a little bit haywire, I can turn back to the savior who is always generous and I can find comfort and community I can find wisdom in godly people around me and I can pursue it in a way that is healthy and right. But the question we need to face this morning and that James is presenting as well, where or who and what do we have sitting on that seat of affection in our lives? I hope it's not that 2,500 rats because then we get forced out of our own home and the authority is not where it should be. Soren Kierkegaard uh, Pastor Neil, he mentioned it last week, and there was another great, great quote from him, but he says this when it comes to uh, wealth and, and money. He says, riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and they become then the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf that is put that is put to tending the sheep. Wealth is not going to be our security. Um, I, I, I mentioned my my YouTube rabbit holes, and one of those rabbit holes that I often find for is like this extreme extravagance like I talked about, the life of the rich and the famous, and you see everything that they have and everything that they do. And there was one specific element that was consistent when someone had extreme extravagance. And this is the second thing that I think James is highlighting. First one was hoarding, second one is extravagance. But extravagance means this, that everyone is actually doing everything for you. That's the pursuit of extravagance. Sure, it's, it might be nice to have somebody do some things for you and, and to pay someone to take care of this, and I, I get that, but in the pursuit of extravagance, often it is the pursuit of making sure that everyone else will do everything for you. Extravagance, in verse five, is kind of talked about like this, that you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And then you fatten yourselves in the day of slaughter. And in 1 Timothy 4.15, James isn't saying that we can't enjoy good things. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But James is talking about an ungodly attitude that sees ourselves as the center of everything. And that's what extravagance does. Because like I said, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy the nice aspects of life, but the goal in life is such that you'll be simply pampering yourself all the time and that you're going for a lavish lifestyle, then you're making yourself the center of everything and you're going to find a ton of emptiness in that. And that's the warning that James is presenting. Instead, he's inviting us that if there is wealth and riches, where to be to those who have, uh, we're, we're supposed to give to those who don't have, and that's why we have been given. The, the, the lives of the rich and famous 
are far too often fraught with tragedy. And when that paradigm that the world tells us that wealth will is the solution for all your problems might come before you, be reminded that when we have seen wealth be presented and used as a solution, it is never the solution that provides the trueness and the fullness of life that you can only find in Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what also always causes anxiety. And we see that even in the extravagant lives of the rich and famous. The, the final piece that um, James talks about in this passage is this idea of injustice. In verse 4, he says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty because far too often the wealth that we see in our Western society and in the lives of those around us have often come on the backs of others who are less fortunate. And it's all too easy for the wealthy to overlook the needs of others and their responsibility to them. And if money is leading us to a careless and insensitive lifestyle, it has become an attitude of affluence that is attacking others through our apathy. We need to be awakened to the ways in which our spending, our wealth, and our money is actually influencing the world around us, people around us. At what cost am I going to actually be spending my money? At what cost is my money actually going to be working in this world? God is concerned for the poor and the oppressed. And James, he concludes with his indictment and he saves his strongest charge for the very end of that passage in verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposed you. God is a God of justice and he cares deeply about the injustices of this world and that's also tied in to our finances, to our wealth, and to our money. Those of us who are in the West, we have this comparative wealth in the West and we need to reflect on our responsibility as consumers. I know I need to be held more accountable in this as well, to think about the kinds of companies that we're supporting and how they treat their workers in, in, in far-flung, impoverished places. What are the ways that we are experiencing wealth and extravagance and hoarding and all the ways that we are spending our money that are coming at the cost of others? Sam Alberry he says that willful ignorance really is no defense. And that hits hard. But he says it's incumbent on us to care about such things and to do all we can to support upright companies and avoid those that deliberately hurt. As I close, hear me on this, church. It is not wrong to be rich. The crime is not being wealthy. The, the, the dangers that James is articulating is hoarding, extravagance, and injustice. The problem is not having money, but loving money. This is articulated in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. And, and the love for money often manifests itself as hoarding, as extravagance, and as injustice. But a love for God makes money a tool for generosity, for mission, and for healthy lifestyles, and greater purpose, belief in something greater. So who's sitting on your primary seat of affection? To whom do you give authority in your life over the emotions and the decisions that you make? 
Does money hold too great of a stronghold over your life that you need to be set free this morning and discover the freedom that we find in Christ and discover that the power of money is that it can be a tool in the kingdom to bless the world in a generous heart that we can discover in the heart of our Savior, in our co-suffering Savior. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, and with this I finish. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of God. In many ways, the world would mock that kind of ambition or request, but God doesn't. The great shield against a heart that covets is a life that is generous. To not hoard, to not make it ourselves as the center, and to not make sure to and to, and to make sure that we're not avoiding and being willfully ignorant in the ways that our money is affecting others. But to have a heart of generosity protects against a heart that desires so much more than we need or that we don't have in the moment, a heart that covets. So this is my challenge to you this morning, this challenge to you this week. Invite Jesus into your finances. When you're making a decision, open in a word of prayer. If you're seeking, if you're wondering how to move forward, seek godly wisdom. Look for good financial strategies and look for good ways in which you can save and invest and be smart with your money, but also consider the ways in which you can have a heart like Jesus so that you are not simply making it about yourself and making yourself the central figure, but you're looking for ways to be generous in all that you have. Pray about your financial decisions. Seek godly wisdom and be generous as Christ has shown us to be generous. Be generous to, to the church. Be generous to, uh, to companies that you are passionate about and causes that you're passionate about. And know that we are met with generosity from a Savior when we come with that heart in everything we do. I hope this challenges you this morning, church. I hope that you feel a little bit of conviction about the ways in which we spend, the way that we accumulate our riches and our wealth, and that you have a sense of gratitude that leads, us, leads to a space of generosity. And this morning, if you don't know this Jesus that we're talking about, if you don't know about this God that shows us generosity, that shows us love, this isn't meant to be a condemnation about trying to, to build a life, but this is about the heart behind it. And it's because the heart for, that God has for you is one of unconditional love, of incredible generosity, and of mercy in every moment so that however far we might have, feeling, have a feeling that we have gone, we know that He is there for us and He is for us. And he loves you this morning. And I hope that you can invite him into your space and discover that revelational love for yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this morning and for the ways in which you shape us and which you move us. Thank you for every single person that is, that is watching, that is listening. And thank you for the honesty that James writes with. He doesn't pull any punches. Sometimes we need to be, be aware of that, about the ways in which our heart is led by the wrong things, about the the money that we put on the seat of our affection. And I just pray right now that for those who are struggling this financial season, that they experience your immense generosity, your provision, the Jehovah Jireh that we know that you are, but that in the same space, they would discover a heart that is after yours, a heart of generosity, a heart that is reliant upon you above all things. Thank you for the ways in which you have provided for us as a church, as individuals. And we just pray right now that we become more like you, that we would look like you, we would talk like you, we would give like you and we would work like you and we would pursue life in a way that is just mirroring the heart that you desire for us to be to truly be followers of Jesus in every aspect of our lives and so we offer it all to you and we give you thanks in Jesus name I pray
Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.